I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Sunday, April 10th, 2022, and this is episode 166 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing is Atlanta season three, the TV show. Uh... I'm a big fan of Atlanta. I think it's really interesting television. I was going to rewatch the first two seasons, but then I didn't because I didn't <laughs> take the time to do that. And it's episodic, but not, as it turns out, that wouldn't have done anything because season three is very, very unique. Um, specifically episode four, which is the latest one as I'm recording this. If you've never seen Atlanta, you can drop into season three, episode four, and watch it. And I highly recommend everybody watch it because it doesn't actually have any of the main cast members. It's completely standalone. Uh, they've had a couple, like the first episode of this season also didn't have any main cast members except for a tiny epilogue at the end. So you could watch that one as well. And those two episodes make it seem like it's sort of like a, like a Twilight Zone-esque, kind of an anthology show almost speculative. Like episode four, which is called uh, The Big Payback, is, it's not necessarily speculative, but it almost is speculative fiction in that it's like, what if this happened? So this episode is, um, basically it follows this middle-aged white man to sort of an everyman in a world where a black man has successfully sued a white man who's ancestors owned slaves, owned the black man's ancestors and gotten money. And so now any white person is sort of at risk of being sued by a black person for the lost wages of their ancestors. And uh, it happens to this guy who's the main character. And it's, it's darkly funny, but also like psychological horror and you're empathizing with this man. It's just like a normal, you know, he's not rich or anything. He's separated from his wife and you're just seeing his daily life and he doesn't have any money. Uh, and the show is really interesting in what it does. It's layer upon layer of meaning. It's not taking a specific stand. Like after I, after I finished watching it, I was like, I asked my husband, what do you think they were trying to say? And he was like, I don't know. And I was reading some reviews and then I went on Reddit to read some what people were were saying. And it's interesting because some of the reviews were like, oh, this is the anti-CRT episode. And I don't think it's that simple, uh, which is critical race theory, of course. <laughs> not, not familiar. Um, I don't think it's pro or anti-reparations necessarily, because I think that during the course of the episode, it really interrogates what would it be like if we had some kind of reparations like this? Can we charge individual modern day white people for the sins of their ancestors? And that in and of itself is sort of a ridiculous notion. And then at the other end, you have a character who is sort of saying why it's not ridiculous. Um, I think it was fabulous, fantastic television because it does make you think, it makes you ask questions. I think you can see your own point of view in it if you look, but if you keep looking, you can see the opposite point of view in my opinion. And um, there's just, I feel like if I watched it again, I would see many more layers of meaning. 
Uh, so yeah, that was just really, really great television. Like I said, episode four, you don't have to uh, see anything else on FX, uh, but definitely check it out. And I think about the writing of that episode. There's different things happening in it. And how did they come up with that idea? And how did they layer so many things into it? I really would be interested. I, I've seen an interview with the, um, the actor, Justin Bartha, who's from The Hangover. I have to look again to see if there's any interviews with the writer to see what she was thinking of. Because in a million years, could I have ever come up with something like that? You know, when I when I see things that I admire, I try to pick them apart and wonder, what was the way in? There's a, there's a callback. There's something that happens in the beginning that you see a different version of towards the middle or the end of the episode. And it's like that that imagery, that metaphor, that mirroring is really good. Also, this season of Atlanta is important to me because it really, at least in the first episode, uh, the very first episode has a sort of a prologue, like a cold open. Again, apropos of nothing, except I think during the season, we're going to see things from, like things keep coming back, like mirroring keeps happening. But um, the very first episode of season three opens with two men on a boat, a black man and a white man fishing. And the white man is telling a story about, I don't think they name it as Lake Lanier, but it seems very much like Lake Lanier, which is a lake uh, north of Atlanta in Georgia that um, was built on top of a black town. And um, you can also just watch that beginning prologue if if you're interested in that. Because what I'm writing about for Orbit Book 2 is black towns, is drowned towns. and um, you know, I've done a lot of research on exactly the story that he was talking about, and I noticed that oh, that wasn't quite right. I I looked it up again because people. I mean, obviously, I've been doing research for months on this, so there are kind of folklore um, that lake, which was you know the result of not just a black town. There's lots of towns underneath that that lake, but um, the rumor is that it's haunted. You know, there's kind of black lore like don't go to Lake Lanier because. Over 500 people have actually died in that lake since it was created from a dam in the mid-50s, which is a lot of people to die on a lake. There's stories of like ghosts. There's a woman who, well, two women who died in a car crash in the lake, and people say that they see one of the ghosts. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff happening. And uh, it's just really interesting to see that pop up again. So... Yeah, and I was reading about the themes of the season, talking about haunting, curses, a lot about race, which I'm not dealing with ghosts and ghost stories in my book, but I am dealing with sort of this legacy of um, of racial conflict and black towns and what it means to have a home and lose your home. How do you find home? Things like that. This book is thematically related to The Monsters We Defy. In Monsters, it takes place in Washington, D.C., in the U Street neighborhood, which was, at that time, in the 20s, thriving, self-sufficient Black neighborhood. That was what really drew me to the story. And my characters are trying to save their people, their neighborhood, from this spiritual threat. And although these two books are standalones, and they're not really taking place in the same world, they don't have any crossover characters as of yet, as of me planning book two, um... The themes of home, self-sufficient Black communities, 
and what it takes to to protect and maintain your home. Those are the themes that are the same in both books. I'm just exploring them in a completely different way. In Monsters, it's an urban center. In the second book, it is um, a rural, you know, small town in the South. And so every time I see, you know, something that I've spent a long time thinking and reading about reflected in popular culture in, in another form, it's always kind of interesting. It's like, oh, yeah, they're using that for something completely different. But how people take, you know, the same kernel of an idea and, um, and go in so many different directions is always really fun to see. So my writing update, I don't actually think that I'm burned out. So in last week's episode, I was talking about wondering what this feeling is. I mean, I am feeling a lot better. I'm, I'm, my energy is coming back. Um, I feel like I'm in a better place. And I really do want to write the book. Uh, so I don't think I'm burnt out, which made me wonder, is it just writer's block? And I was listening to um, a podcast, the Six Figure Author Podcast one of the more recent ones, it's a few episodes old, where they were talking about scheduling, I think was the episode. But one of the hosts, you know, was wondering whether he was dealing with writer's block or burnout. And that's a good question. Uh, I know a lot of writers don't believe in writer's block. To me, that comes down to semantics sometimes. Uh, Whatever you want to call it, there's a thing that happens where you, you can't write, or you don't want to write, or it's hard, it becomes much more difficult. And people deal with it in different ways. I'm always trying to find productive ways to deal with um, the difficult times. So I came across this article by Austin Kleon, who is an artist. He did the Steal Like an Artist books. I subscribe to his newsletter, which I do recommend. It's a weekly newsletter of 10 interesting links. Um, and I usually find something kind of cool in there. So this post was called Skip the Boring Parts. And it's got a lot of quotes from artists and writers about block being blocked. And something that I pulled out was that Block is a sign that you don't have what you need, and you should probably go somewhere else and do something else until you get what it is that you need. And then I pulled a quote from Carol King, the singer-songwriter, who says, if you are sitting down and you feel you want to write and nothing is coming, you get up and you do something else, then you come back again and try it again. And so it's multiple people kind of saying the same thing, like, which is what I call filling the well, you know, you don't have what you need, do something else, feed yourself find inspiration somewhere, take your mind off of it. Don't just bang your head against the wall for hours because that makes you feel even worse. Then come back again and try again. You don't give up. You just, you try to fill yourself. Another uh, quote from this uh, post says that um, you're having trouble writing, not because you can't find the right words, but because you don't know what you're trying to say. You don't have the right facts at hand. So the solution is to gather more facts. Now, this was a nonfiction writer who said that, um, but I found it to be extremely true for fiction also. As I spent this week working on this Black Towns story and doing more research, because I came to the realization that, not even realization, I think I knew it in my heart, I knew it the whole time, but it just became more clear that I don't have what I need. I have a synopsis, I've got a plot, I've got various plot charts, but I don't have that feeling that I need, that I know what I need to know so that I can start writing. And as I was trying to fill the well and doing research, I came across a great article about one of the towns that I'm basing my story on. So Lake Lanier was built um, 
on top of a town called Oscarville in Georgia. There's another town in Alabama called Kaolija that, and those are my two black towns, Kaolija more so than Oscarville that I'm basing, that I'm pulling from for my story. I'm kind of doing a mashup of a couple of different things that were happening in history and creating a fictional black town and then um, putting it in jeopardy. And so I was reading one of my books that I bought from a used bookstore on dams and uh, rivers. I've been doing a lot of research on flowage easements and eminent domain. And I came across this article from the 1920s in an an Alabama newspaper. It was a two-page spread about this town. And it was like gold. I was like, oh, this is lovely. It was was one whole page was written by one of the the son of the founder of the town, who was, uh, the founder was, uh, had been a slave. And after the Civil War, he got his freedom and he worked and he saved money and he bought land and he built a town. And his son was able to be educated, went to Howard University and came back and built a school. And so I'm basing some of my characters on these people and to find this article written about his school and the business he was starting. And he started a railroad and this thriving town that is my inspiration for my town. And I was like, I need to figure out how to build my town, my fictional town. So how do you build a town? You know, what are the businesses? What are the people, the histories, the personalities? I need this town to come alive. And I don't have like any of that yet. So I have to spend some time thinking about that and building that. I read the first chapter of Linden Hills by Gloria Naylor, because I was looking for Black books about Black towns. Linden Hills is about a neighborhood in, um, I can't remember where it is, Ohio, Oklahoma. I feel like it was an O state. (laughs) And Gloria Naylor is one of my favorite authors. uh, And she was a huge inspiration for me. I reread Mama Day before I wrote Monsters. And so I I remembered this book and I reread the beginning. And in the beginning, she sets up the the geography of this neighborhood because it's important for you to understand as you read this book that Linden Hills is built on a hill. The bottom of the hill is where the the owner of the land lives. There's a cemetery there. And the houses get progressively nicer and richer as you go down the hill, which is kind of opposite to what you would normally think. Usually you think of the rich man living on top of the hill. It's also based on Dante's Inferno. So you've got the circles. And so each street is a, it's a circle around this hill and you get to the bottom. But in the prologue, she lays out the geography very clearly. And I'm like, I need a map. I need to know the geography of my town. I need to write it down. I need to plot it. You know, when I, when I was writing Monsters We Defy, I used uh, an interactive map site called Scribble Maps. And I created a map of DC in 1925 based on DC now, because the streets are basically the same. They haven't changed in a hundred years. But whenever I was doing research and I would come across a business with an address, I would plot it on my map. So I knew drugstores, movie theaters, nightclubs. I had the bakery. I had the, the, um, the lunch counter. I had the Japanese sweet shop, you know, all of these places. So I could walk down the street looking at my map in my mind, you know, and know what my characters were seeing as they walked down the street. That really helped me write that story. It really helped me bring that neighborhood alive. And even though it's not a small town, you're not seeing all of the people in the way that I think you do in a small town story, because it is very urban. It still allowed 
me to have the characters really be connected to the neighborhood. So I was like, I need a map. I need to do this world building. And this fictional town is going to be in our world, quote unquote, but like I'm not doing second world fantasy for this part of it, but I still need to build the world. And I haven't done that yet. And uh, I really can't start writing until I do. So yeah, it's, I have to know the right facts. I have to find them. And sort of having a plan of, of what I need to know before I can move forward is really helpful in giving me confidence about getting to the writing again sometime soon. I don't know exactly when, because there's other things on the list that I have to know. Uh, the research started with the dams and all of that stuff, because in my synopsis, I have a situation that is sort of the the frame story that I knew wasn't right. You know, I wrote it because I had to turn the synopsis in. But in my mind, I was like, this makes very little sense. And I knew I was going to have to do more research to actually come up with a grounded reason. Because if I change this sort of catalyst, it's going to have ripple effects on the motivations of characters and the actual actions of the antagonists. So I had to really firm that up. And that has been what I've been spending my time doing research on this week. Um, and I think I've got something, you know, there's two, there's two possible ideas and they're slightly different and they're going to have different ripple effects. So I have to decide about which one I'm going to do to use, but I am feeling more confident because of this. And I am feeling like this resistance to writing. I mean, it could be a little bit of burnout and some blockage as well, you know, but I think the burnout is more on not the writing side, but the day job side and really bleeding into the rest of my life. I came across this Medium article on um, work burnout and there were some tips about dealing with it, which I think some of the things I've already been trying to incorporate, like um, spend more time doing what you want to do, spend less time doing what you hate. <laughs> And one of the tips was to imagine your ideal life and how far away is it? Like if, if money was on an object, if we were independently wealthy, how would we spend our days? How different does that look to how you spend your days now? There are parts about my day job making websites that I absolutely love and would continue to do. And there are parts that I would absolutely farm out. And so, okay, how can I farm those out now before I'm independently wealthy and focus more on earning money from things that I enjoy and sort of believing that you can control, uh, control that. There's a large black bird, like a crow outside my window that has something small and furry in its mouth and, you know, circle of life, but does make me a little sad. Anyway, I do want to thank uh, all the commenters, people who left comments and words of encouragement for me. I really do appreciate that. Thank you all so much. It's really helpful. And uh, also a big shout out to Library Addict for letting me know that my autoresponder wasn't working properly after I talked about it last week. So hopefully that's fixed. And yeah, I, I appreciate that. Like I test and I don't know what happened. I, I tested, obviously I wasn't testing properly because it wasn't working. But um, yeah, I do appreciate all the comments and all the notes. And if you'd like to comment, uh, you can do it on YouTube or on my website, elpenelope.com slash podcast uh, on the episode page. Uh, so thanks. In Savage City news, uh, I have done, I started some Amazon ads, trying to continue the marketing, 
post-launch, uh, I looked at the numbers every couple of days. I look at my sales numbers. I don't want to check too often because that would kind of drive me crazy, but I do need to know what's happening. And I'm, yeah, I'm actually really pleased with it. It's moving forward and more people are finding the books. The reviews are starting to come in, which is really nice too. Um, if you have read Savage City, I would really appreciate a review. If you've read any of my books, please review on Apple. I mean, well, Apple, do you, I've never seen their reviews on Apple. Amazon and Goodreads, but any retailer I'm sure is fine. Um, I think Amazon and Goodreads are kind of the ones most people look at, but yeah, that would make a big difference. Um, so yeah, I my ad strategy is I will make a budget, probably a couple hundred dollars, since this is only one book right now. The next book's not coming out probably for a year, maybe less, we'll see. Uh, but it's more about visibility and that, that old marketing adage where someone has to see a product seven times before they buy it. So at least, even if they're not buying it when they see the ad, it's another hit, you know, it's, it's one more in that tally. And so Amazon ads, there's a couple ways to do them. I have one ad that is automatically targeted where you just let Amazon figure, figure out where to show it. And then you can specify keywords. So I went through and I created a list of about 50 keywords, which are mostly other authors, other paranormal authors, other black speculative fiction authors, and some book titles as well. So those ads are going on. I'll do this for a couple of weeks until I run out of the budget. And then I think I'm going to try some BookBub cost per click ads also and do a small budget on that. And those are the ads at the bottom of the BookBub emails, so not the featured deals. But since Macmillan did do a BookBub for me, at least one for Song of Blood and Stone, I have some followers on BookBub that I can target people who have actually clicked on my name before in addition to other authors, similar authors that I can target. So that'll be an experiment that I'll do maybe in a week or two. Uh, I'll see what's going on with these Amazon ads at first. I'm not sure about Facebook ads at this point. I probably will not. I might do that as a strategy like later, like next year or when the trilogy is complete and I can discount the first book and do that whole thing. Amazon is a little bit easier to deal with in terms of advertising and I've done BookBub ads before a while ago. Facebook ads are just, I don't know, they're a little bit daunting. And people, I know that ads in general have become more expensive and less effective over time, but I'm not afraid of advertising, even though it's one book, as long as I have a set budget. And then after that, it's like, okay, I guess I'm open to reevaluating if the ads go really well. But yeah, the goal for that would just be, like I said, visibility of the book so people know that it exists. And that is it for me for this week. Uh, my goals for the coming week, continue the research, continue the world building. I guess, you know, we, research and world building go hand in hand. Figuring out the things that I don't know about the story, nailing them down, making decisions, and getting closer to a place where I can actually start writing words and then getting a, a draft so that I can, at that point, put a schedule into place and see exactly when things can happen. Uh, I have not been successful in my split week in terms of splitting my time between this um, this Black Towns book and Beastly Kingdom. It was all the Orbit book this week. I do plan to do that, but 
you know, this book is the heavier lift. I think Beastly Kingdom, it's not going to be easy, but um, it's going to be a shorter book. It's a little bit more straightforward. I think it's not as emotionally wrought. You know, the things I'm dealing with in this Black Towns book is uh, are much heavier. So I'll feel better once I have more of a handle on that. And then maybe I'll be able to try the whole splitting my time thing again. Also, I need to write it down. I just sort of had it in my head. I didn't have a schedule of any kind. And I'm not quite ready to to get myself on more of a stringent schedule yet. I'm just trying to ease back into feeling good about things. So I'm not too worried yet. I will try to wrangle myself into more of a scheduled, regimented writing style later on in a couple months or weeks. I have to just go by what I feel. So yeah, world building and research this week. Those are the goals. And I hope that you have a wonderful week. Easter's coming up. Easter always sneaks up on me, but it's uh, the day before my birthday this year. So happy Easter, because I won't talk to you before then. And when I next talk to you, it will be my birthday, if you listen in real time. So have a great week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the Footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox and leave a comment, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. I would really appreciate a rating or review to help support the show. You can email me at podcast at lpenelope.com. And My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcasts.